When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea, or figure from history, we explain its origins, and we talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I am the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, and I'm a columnist with the Iron newspaper. This is the first of a two-parter on John Maynard Keynes, the most important economist of the 20th century, and much more besides. And we really need those two parts. There was no debate. Ian, I was thinking... Is he actually the most extraordinary individual <laughs> that we've discussed so far? Like, just, not just economist, but person. <laughs> the answer to that is yes. But also, I think you've really set the tone for how we're going to approach these episodes, which is basically be like, just how fucking great is he? And the answer to that is very, very fucking great indeed. Yeah. You know, there's going to be sort of criticisms. We're going to be pointing out his sort of shortcomings, uh, his failures and so on. But just if we're talking about just like the size of a of a life, and, and I mean, Churchill had that as well. But Churchill had a lot more ups and downs. You know, Keynes had like a hell of a life. And it, it, it made me think about this phrase like, that was attached to Thomas Piketty, like rock star economist. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about Thomas Piketty, really, beyond his work. I don't know, we don't know much about his life and his other interests. And, and, and I think most people in the street would not recognize, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Piketty. So I'm like, well, who else is on that level, like in the history of the field? In terms of finding people of, of influence... You really, over the history of economics, you, you ultimately come down to Adam Smith, Keynes, and Milton Friedman, probably. And you might include Hayek in there. Yeah. You would, I think, in most cases, and I think even most of his opponents would say, that ultimately you would reduce that pretty quickly down to Keynes and Adam Smith. And then there's the political element. Like in terms of our political history, what is this man? And this man is basically someone who, he created almost... It's almost like what Marx did with socialism, right? Like people talked about socialism before Marx, but it was in this quite dreamy, shouldn't we be nicer, Fabians kind of way. Then Marx comes along, he's like, no, it's not about compassion. It's about a scientific, you know, process. This is how it works and off we go. That's sort of the role that Keynes plays for social democracy or for sort of progressive liberalism, centre-left kind of thought, which is to say, no, you know, there's a system, actually. We can do something quite precise in these circumstances, that the market does not always run itself to the best efficiency, that the state should intervene, and that we can do that to improve the material life of people in a country. So he becomes this sort of patron saint, really, of social democracy, of a whole way of looking at the world politically. And he helped to establish economics as a discipline. Um, But Zach Carter, author of The Price of Peace, uh, claims that he was as much a philosopher and a poet as an economist. And I've consulted quite a few uh, biographies. And it's interesting, he had so many dimensions that each biographer accuses the others (laughs) of like downplaying one of them. (laughs) Because almost like you can't can't foreground all of them at once. And... uh, Keynes once wrote about the qualities of a great economist, Mm. which does rather sound like he's describing himself. He goes, the master economist must possess a rare combination of gifts. He must be a mathematician. 
historian, statesman, philosopher, in some degree as aloof and incorruptible as an artist, yet sometimes as near the earth as a politician. <laughs> I mean, that is Keynes. We should say, of his many qualities, modesty was not one of them. <laughs> we'll see that throughout. He knew that he had a very, very big fucking brain, and he was not you know, reticent about demonstrating that or bludgeoning people into silence when he encountered them. He is a man, I think, that is defined by the absence of boundaries. Like, there's almost nothing you can say about him that the opposite isn't also true. I mean, it goes from his sexuality, he was gay, he was also straight. Uh, it goes for the manner in which he writes. You know, he writes these really quite sort of, you know, stripped down, tough, academic, economic papers. And at the same time, in certain moments, he just busts out with this kind of extraordinary journalistic flair, where it's all these sort of sketches, scathing, devastating sketches yeah, of people yeah. like Lord George and Clemenceau. He's a man that's really concerned with art and feeling and friendship. And yet is working all the time in sort of financial areas, you know, in the stock market and economics. He, And then ultimately, what he does with his work, his main life's work, is to break down the boundary that separates, you know, socialism on the one hand and laissez-faire capitalism on the other and go, no, actually, there is a middle ground here. And I think it had to be someone with none of those boundaries who was able to think in that really fresh way, that way that refused to be restricted by the things that had come before him. Now, John Maynard Keynes, born in 1883, the year that Karl Marx died, died in 1946, the year that Bill Clinton was born. <laughs> the OED <laughs> defines Keynesian as of or relating to John Maynard Keynes or his economic theories. Fair dues. Uh, then it summarises, Keynesian theory advocates state intervention in the economy to regulate demand and maintain high levels of employment through monetary and fiscal policy. Keynes's theories were often contrasted with those of Milton Friedman. Yeah. That's fair enough. It is fair enough. Is this a good moment to sort of say that there are really, and I think we'll see over the course of this story, two John Maynard Keynes. One of them is the author of a very specific economic theory, which was that you can sometimes have a catastrophic failure of aggregate demand, which can be solved by fiscal stimulus. I know that's not going to make any sense right now. It will make sense by the time we get to the end of this. And it's a very specific solution to a very specific problem. And that's The Economist, the stripped down serious economist. Then there's the other version, which is, I think, the sort of almost the political philosopher. And that is... The market does not work at peak on its own. It needs the state to interfere to make it function properly. That is a really broad point. And once you accept that point, you're dealing with a much bigger range of societal changes that you face. You know, you, you could start talking about yeah. the NHS. You start talking about, you know, welfare. You start talking about regulation of banking. You know, all of these things become possible all of a sudden because there's been a real philosophical change, a kind of a stake right into the heart of laissez-faire and what would later become neoliberalism. So those two versions in these stories, I think, kind of overlap. And in modern usage, and when you're reading a newspaper or whatever else, people are often using the philosophy version of him rather than the stripped down economic version of him. Both of them are valid, but you kind of need to know which one you're dealing with at any given moment. As a first citation for the, the word Keynesian was 1931, but then I think it just meant, you know, the analysis of Keynes personally. <laughs> first citation for Keynesian economics is 1940. But interestingly, I found uh, through newspapers.com, which is my new geek archive. I've noticed this coming up more yeah, and yeah. more with you. I, lo I like it. I like it. I get is to it, argue with the OED. Do you sometimes feel that the OED <laughs> is looking jealously over at oh, you yeah. while I'm you're I'm like that meme. <laughs> I mean, turning around, looking at newspapers.com. <laughs> 
So I found Keynesian finance in a satirical poem about Lloyd George in The Guardian in 1922. Oh, wow. But Jesus, wow. as is often the case, you get a kind of, you know, an, an outlier really early on. It doesn't really take off until the 1930s. Now, what struck me as we're talking about the ideas as well as the man, is that this is, weirdly, it's a prologue to the neoliberalism episode from season one, that what we actually did was the Empire Strikes Back before Star Wars. Because <laughs> <laughs> neoliberalism is, is the counter-revolution, it's almost the restoration of the classical economics that Keynes was arguing with. And he saw Hayek initially as, as really old-fashioned, mm. as a representative of the status quo. And, and that's how Hayek saw himself. Yep. He thought he was a man born out of time. And it yeah. really shows how completely and how quickly Keynes changed the game, that he became the sort of monolith that the sort of plucky mm. neoliberals had mm. to take down when they were representing the status quo that he had taken down. And so I think what we're talking about, as well as we're going to talk a lot about the man, because he's just so fascinating, but we're talking about... I think, hegemonic ideas and, and, and what happens when people come to believe, whether or not The Economist is claiming this themselves, that a theory can provide solutions in all circumstances. It's like this one weird trick mm. that you see on the internet. And that, that when a theory becomes dominant, it cuts across party lines, right? So Eisenhower in the 50s is more Keynesian than Bill Clinton in the 90s because mm -hmm. it's, it's all about what works, but people get very, um, I think, get too excited about what works and think that it's always going to work. And Keynes himself warned against that because he rejected these systems, whether it's classical economics or Marxism, which are sort of pseudo-scientific and claimed to predict the future. And he went, well, look, these, these solutions are not definitive. He changed his mind famously quite a lot. Mm. And... Therefore, is it wrong to think of Keynesianism, as, as he would have seen it, as the mirror image of neoliberalism? Is it just like a, these are these two kind of giant counter theories? Or is Keynesianism far more kind of slippery and flexible? I, I always sort of see it more as you have communism on one hand and let's call it neoliberalism or whatever on yeah. the other. You know, one is the state should basically do everything and the other one is the market should basically yeah, yeah. do everything. And you have this really quite proud tradition that has a direct lineage back to John Stuart Mill and in his case, a very direct one uh, and on a personal level. I mean, John Stuart Mill's godson was Bertram Russell and Bertram Russell is sort of a colleague and a friend of John Maynard Keynes, which is to basically say, well, look, we, there's no... the." John Stuart Mill answer is that there is no universal solution to this problem. You are engaged in a process of going, okay, well, sometimes the state this and sometimes the market this, and we'll see in each individual context how that works. So it is not just, a, I think, a prequel to the neoliberalism episode. I also think it's like a companion piece to the centrism episode <laughs> because mm. he is the patron saint of centrist, basically. I was going to ask you this. Is he king centrist? It's hard. I mean, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of the word centrist, but it's hard to to avoid that kind of thing. And it's also worth, if you think about the one of the things I adore about him is how constructive he is. We will constantly see over the course of this, like he fights for an ideal situation. Mm -hmm. He realizes it's not politically possible. He's not back. Whenever he complains, he always comes up with an alternative proposal. It's never just the no. There's also a, and how about this? You know, it's a, it's a very practical, pragmatic form of idealism that he pursues. So stick with us because we're going to Keynes it. We're going to canes it hard. You look so happy with yourself right now. <laughs> well, it's a good way of re re reminding people how to pronounce his name. 
<laughs> they go, is it Keynes? No, because of Keynesing it. John Maynard Keynes is born in Cambridge on 5th of June, 1883, the eldest of three, uh, to Neville, a Cambridge don, and Florence, an intellectual who became the first female mayor of Cambridge. Hmm. Uh, not wealthy as such, but very privileged. He's very well loved, raised in this wonderful intellectual atmosphere to be extremely clever, which he is. He wins a scholarship to Eton, where he is happy and successful and wins dozens of prizes. <laughs> then he wins a scholarship to King's College, Cambridge, where he's happy and successful and becomes president of the Cambridge Union, and so on and so forth. Um, if you're looking for, you know, in a Churchill way, you know, that that kind of that real sort of unhappiness that makes the man, mm. you can't really find it. it it's sort of unbroken privilege, opportunity and, and success, except for one thing. There is one cloud. Hmm. Which his is face. That he thinks he's ugly. Yeah. And now, he's obsessed with it. He's obsessed with it. His later frenemy, Virginia Woolf, hmm. said he looked like a gorged seal, <laughs> double chin, ledge of red lips, little <laughs> eyes, sensual, brutal, unimaginative. <laughs> and that was basically one of the nicer things she said about I know, him. I, I, I mean, I, I can only assume that this was after he had told her that she should stick to nonfiction <laughs> and give yeah. up. Novel writing. Would you like to hear from the assistant master at Eton? So at this point, he's presumably very young. Yeah. This was his take on Keynes. Distinctly ugly at first sight, with lips projecting and seeming to push up the well-formed nose and strong brows in slightly simian fashion. Jesus. Just was a thing like, what the fuck business did you have writing this stuff about the face <laughs> of the, children? Like parents' <laughs> evening where you're just giving your opinion on that. No, he's, he's doing wonderfully in, in mathematics, but his brow <laughs> is deeply offensive. It's very simian. And then despite this, despite the fact that he considers himself ugly, he had a very active sex life. Now, his first biographer, Roy Harrod, um, who's also one of his former protégés, mm -hmm. um, just completely buried Keynes' bisexuality mm -hmm. uh, because in 1951, he thought it might hurt his legacy. Right. Um, it didn't really come out until the 1960s. We now know that Keynes kept a list of all his sexual liaisons between 1901 and 1915. Very um, Keynes. It's a very yeah, Keynes thing to do. Um, all with men at this stage in his life, um, giving them names like Stable Boy of Park Lane and Lift Boy of Vauxhall. <laughs> So although he was somewhat of an elitist, in the bedroom, very democratic. Mm -hmm. Now, at Cambridge, um, he studies mathematics. Ronald Reagan was apparently amazed to learn that Keynes didn't have an economics degree, but that's because there was no such thing mm. at that time. Basically because he invented it. Yeah. yeah. But he meets the great economist Arthur Marshall, a friend of his father's, whose 1890 book, Principles of Economics, was basically considered the be-all and end-all of economics. That's how sort of small the field was. Mm. Like people would just go, well, what does Marshall say? And that's economics. And it was Marshall who actually advised Keynes to pursue economics. There's a point where it's, it's almost like he finds it so easy. It's, it's almost like, oh, can I even be bothered? He writes to his friend, I find economics increasingly satisfactory and think I'm rather good at it. I want to manage a railway or organize a trust or at least swindle the investing public. Uh, <laughs> it is so easy and fascinating to master the principles of these things. Again, not humble. Uh, <laughs> he is a member of the kind of uh, elite Cambridge Apostles Club mm -hmm. alongside E.M. Forster and Linton 
Strachey, mm. who became famous uh, for his book Imin- Eminent Victorians. Yeah. And listen, Strachey plays a role all the way through the story. Yeah. And, and again, sort of the frenemy territory. They oh my God. Really bad fallings out, but yeah. they, they clearly do love each other. He goes out of his way to defend him, to protect him. Through Forster and Strachey, he meets the artists and intellectuals in the so-called Bloomsbury Group in London, which includes Virginia Woolf, Vanessa Bell, and the painter Duncan Grant, who becomes his lover. He does. I mean, so, so look, they're, they're constantly already in these sort of almost rotating romantic relationships mm. you know so i mean duncan grant for instance uh, was is the cousin of strakey and was in a relationship with him strakey was very upset you know when that wasn't working out confided to canes canes at the time was in love with a man called arthur lee hobhouse then duncan grant starts going out with hobhouse that all goes a bit funny then Kane starts going out with grant he falls out with strakey you know so you basically have this, this kind of a soap opera and yeah. in fact bloomsbury itself is just this massive sort of very fluid soap opera of people becoming friends and becoming lovers and going back to friends and it, you know, there's lots of bisexuality there there's lots of gay relationships there there are heterosexual relationships there. there's an amazing line from Vanessa Bell um, who, who really admired him for being unshockable because he was <laughs> um, he was the only academic in the group in Cambridge at that point mm-hmm. was really associated with, with rationalism but Keynes was really into the philosopher G.E. Moore who argued that friendship and aesthetics were essential to a good life he rejected uptight Victorian values so you know they, they'd slightly misread Keynes as like a, a, a bit of an outsider and, and Vanessa Bell who seemed to be someone who, who didn't fall out with him that's <laughs> remarkably um, wrote to him one can talk of fucking and sodomy and sucking and bushes all without turning a hair <laughs> So that that was a real quality in the Bloomsbury group, as as I think it probably is now. The Bloomsbury group, uh, they, they always mean a bit to me, you know, like when I first moved to London, I was at UCL and, right. you know, the halls of residence, you know, is sort of just off, you know, around that kind of Gower Street yeah. area. And so in the pubs you'd go to, these would always be like, there'd be photos, pictures, you know, of that kind of thing. It always felt like that was the, the sort of intellectual heritage of that area. And so I associate it with my first year of university very strongly. You know, these people, they're, they're radicals, they're pacifists, they're all very, very privileged. You know, they all have sort of servants attending them. This isn't some sort of socialist, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but they look and sound very often like the modern world well ahead of their time, yeah. and particularly on issues around sexuality and relationships. Um, so the classic biography of Keynes, the one that you're usually sent to, is by Robert Skidelsky. And it's huge. I mean, he took, you know, to give you an impression, it was a trilogy. And I think he took nine years between the first and the second because he just taught himself economics. You know, it, it is a very, very in-depth. Uh, I, I'm not so keen on that. I think you like it more than I do. Um, but he has a beautiful line that sort of describes Keynes's relationship with Bloomsbury. He said he, he was condemned or selected by aptitude or disposition to work largely in the world of means rather than ends. This was his way of promoting mm. and paying homage to the vision of the good life which he shared with his friends. There's this really recurring theme with him if he finds people that he thinks have artistic integrity and they're just sort of too tender to really function in the hard, brutal world of commerce. And, you know, and his job is to just... He's the guardian, you know, mm. like he will, he will make the money. He will share the money. He will go out there politically to tribunals when they're in trouble and protect them there. He is the wall that protects them from the viciousness of the real world. So you can actually tell the story of Keynes and the Bloomsbury Group. And that would be a very interesting story. Yes. Then, he's yeah. his other life where after a brief spell as a civil servant in the India office, um, he returns to King's as a, as a lecturer 
and then a fellow. Of course, he's very, very popular. <laughs> students love him. Um, you know, by the way, he, when you get to like page 800 of, oh, and he succeeded magnificently yeah. at this while everyone loving him, you're like, it's quite irritating. And he gets to know Bertrand Russell, the most famous philosopher in, in England. I agree. Would you, would you like to hear and, Bertrand Russell's assessment of his intellect? Just bear in mind, this is from the man who just spent several hundred pages of symbolic logic proving that one plus one equaled two. So essentially one of the most, arguably the most impressive mathematical and philosophical accomplishments of the century. He said this of uh, Keynes. He said his intellect was the sharpest and clearest that I have ever known. When I argued with him, I felt that I took my life in my hands and seldom emerged without feeling something of a fool. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> Testimonial. <laughs> Uh, at Cambridge, Keynes also uh, gets to know a uh, young philosopher called Wittgenstein, mm. uh, poet Rupert Brooke. It's it's celebrity street, basically, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere he goes. What's interesting is before the First World War, he's not that interested in politics, which is very Bloomsbury of him. Mm. And he writes to Duncan Grant in 1911 after spending some time with some liberal MPs. And he was a liberal. So mm. these are his, yeah, gu yeah. his guys, yeah. right? You haven't, I suppose, ever mixed with politicians at close quarters. They're awful. <laughs> I think some of these must have been the dregs anyhow, but I've discovered what previously I didn't believe possible, that politicians behave in private life and say exactly the same things as they do in public. Their stupidity is inhuman. <laughs> he's, he's always very annoyed by how stupid the rest of oh. the world is. He's constantly infuriated. He does have a brief period where he becomes a civil servant. He writes uh, to one of his friends... Yesterday I attended my first committee of council. At least half those present showed manifest signs of senile decay. The rest did not speak. <laughs> <laughs> there is a kind of early 20th century bitchiness mm. that is always delightful when you're reading about this period, mm. which mm. has really sort of died out. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, for reasons. Yeah. I mean, me writing fuck my life on Twitter doesn't quite live yeah. up to the scathing appraisals of him. One of the losses in the sort of decline of letter writing, I think. So he's, he's sort of dragged into politics in a sense when the First World War breaks out and David Lloyd George, then Chancellor, later PM, turns to him for economic advice. And he really enjoys the work in, in Whitehall because it's intellectually challenging. But the Bloomsbury Group are pacifists, so that's a bit awkward. <laughs> and he sort of makes amends by helping them all avoid conscription when that comes in, by helping them you know, do, do sort of war work on the farm. Yes, exactly. Very, very nationally important work, you know, making leaks or whatever. You know, so they can't possibly go and fight. Yeah. Strickland's biographer says this. He says, uh, Lighton himself seemed to have believed that all physically fit individuals should be prepared to defend the shores of England. But with this reservation, no intellectuals were, in fact, physically fit. <laughs> <laughs> and he does lose some friends uh, in the war. Very upset when Rupert Brooke, uh, who he knew at Cambridge, dies in the war. And fascinating bit from, from one of the books I read, can't remember which one, um, that Keynes would have died himself if he had been on the ship with Lord Kitchener uh, on a diplomatic mission to Russia in 1916, which he was meant to be, huh. which hit a mine and sank and was a sort of national, you know, Jesus, national wow. mourning. Uh -huh. Throughout this period, he's really coming under increasingly intense attacks from his friends. He spends most of the... You have to feel quite sorry for him, you know, because he's constantly trying to protect them from the draft. But what he gets in response is just this sort of relentless criticism, and, and it culminates 
And there's a couple of instances. At one point, Duncan Grant and a guy called Bunny, David Garner, who's his, his new lover, sort of go off to Paris and they're abused and expelled. And Bunny writes to Keynes, what are you? Only an intelligence that they need in their extremity, a genie taken incautiously out of kings by savages to serve them faithfully for their savage ends. And then back you go in the bottle. Strachey then cuts out a newspaper report of a speech by Edwin Montague, this really militaristic sort of brutal speech, and attaches a note to it saying, Dear Maynard, why are you still at the Treasury? And puts it on his plate in Gordon Square when he's eating. And it's this real moment of just like, like almost like the white feather. You know what I mean? Like mm. almost like you're a traitor, right? So there's, it, it's a really intense, acute period of tensions on both sides of his life, the side that he has right at the top of political life and the side he has with a radical subculture that he's somehow trying to make them operate at the same time, but it's becoming increasingly acute. Where I think that tension handily gets resolved and is kind of the making of Keynes's reputation on the national and international stage is, is at the end of the war, Lloyd George takes him to the peace conference in Versailles and Keynes is aghast at the plan to impose punitive reparations on, on Germany and the other defeated powers thinks this will be a total disaster for Europe, both economically, in the short term, politically, in the long term. Nobody listens to him, so he quits. <laughs> this is from his letter to Lloyd George in June 1919. Another killer letter. Yes. I ought to let you know that on Saturday I am slipping away from the scene of the nightmare. I can do no more good here. I've gone on hoping, even through these last dreadful weeks, that you'd find some way to make of the treaty a just and expedient document, but now it's apparently too late. The battle is lost. Something very interesting happened there. I mean, his proposal, you know, he was the one that was originally formulating the treasury position. You know, it was basically to say, like, look, we're going to get some money back from the Germans. But you can't get the money unless they're able to function, unless they're able to, you know, sell mm. exports, mm. basically. I mean, his, his line that he uses in the memo is, if Germany is to be milked, she must not, first of all, be ruined. You know, and it's taking place in this world situation. You've got, you know, disease everywhere. You've got revolution everywhere. You've got violence everywhere, the, the psychological trauma of what has happened, financial chaos, and this sort of seething hatred, particularly in Britain and France at Germany, and this just demand on Lloyd George and on Clemenceau of like, they must pay, they must pay, where reason increasingly goes out the window. And Keynes' response is, is essentially his outrage is that is ultimately that politics has trumped economics, that abiding by that kind of anger in the country overrules what is the only logical way to proceed. Because if you want to get the money back, you have it there. And his proposals are pragmatic. And he basically says, it's like one of the reasons that countries like Britain and France are asking so much money from Germany is because they've got debts to the US. So what we really need are German bonds that can be used to essentially sort of extinguish the debt between the allies. It'll be easier for Germany. The US will get an export market. You know, Britain and, and France will be alleviated of their debts and won't have to punish Germany so hard. It was basically this really pragmatic solution that if it had been followed, mm. the events which take place over the decades to come very well might not have taken place. And this is maybe the, this is maybe the first real failure of his extremely successful life yes. up to that point. Th that uh, is the counter, isn't it, to his personal successes, that politically he fails kind of over and over and over again. I mean, this will be the, the story, but then he sort of turns those failures into another success. So what, what he does is he dashes out a furious polemic, the economic consequences of the peace. Bear in mind, he sends the letter to Lloyd George and walks out June 1919. The book is out by December. Uh, quite impressive. Mm. Tells his mother he was stirred into it by deep and violent shame. It sells 100,000 copies worldwide. He is praised by basically everyone from 
cabinet ministers mm. in Lloyd George's cabinet to socialists who really didn't think much of him before becomes a hero of the left. Um, the Bloomsbury set like it because it's sort of in the vein of Strachey's eminent Victoria. Yes, it's yes, like, yes, like yes. a real fucking classy takedown. Yeah. Uh, he makes quite a lot of money out of it. What I wanted to ask you is that some people, uh, not so much now maybe, but later on after the Second World War, blamed Keynes for sort of establishing this anti-Versailles consensus, which encouraged non-enforcement and ultimately appeasement, mm. you know, and the idea that Versailles sowed the seeds of the Second World War and somehow that made it sort of a bit softer yeah. on, on Hitler. Is, is that fair? No, I mean, it's just nonsense. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you, but you look, you know, it's, if you have like even a cursory reading of German politics during the Weimar Republic, you would not, you know, it's not like they're not sitting around talking about, it, 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 it's part <laughs> of the narrative, you know. But basically, you know, it, part of it is the, the armistice, that there is not a German perception encouraged by the generals yeah. that they have lost. It was like, well, no, hold on. We just got, there was a traitor on the home front. You know, this is what happened. We got, mm -hmm. we got undermined on the home front. And that then obviously becomes the great sort of snarling conspiracy theory that dominates, you know, German politics and turns into mm. sort of anti-Semitism under Hitler and blah, 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 blah. And this, this complete political impossibility of reparations in Germany. I mean, that's not... Versailles not, didn't suck because Keynes said it sucked. <laughs> like, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> this would exactly, be my exactly. counter -argument. Is it worth just, just sort of briefly as well, just sort of saying, like, this thing is beautifully written. Mm. He's just, like, all of that Bloomsbury cattiness is just unleashed, but within a framework of a really magisterial economic uh, sort of sober assessment of mm. the situation. Um, to give you, like, one passage, which he actually removed on Lloyd George, but it's worth questioning just because it's so delicious. He's, this is how he assesses Lloyd George, who he's just worked with for years on yeah, end. Yeah. He is rooted in nothing. He is void and without content. One catches in his company that flavour of final purposelessness, inner irresponsibility, existence outside or away from our Saxon good and evil, mixed with cunning, remorselessness, love of power that lend fascination and terror to the fair-seeming magicians of North European folklore. And you're just like, my God. It's not even like drive-by shootings. Like he formally, he just parks the car, <laughs> gets a like, whole armory out. Compares Woodrow Wilson to Don Quixote. There's like, <laughs> there's a lot of great lines in there. And and some people would say like, it, this is his best book as a book. Yeah, I think that's right. As like, a good read. This was one of the. I mean, he doesn't try it that often. Towards the end, as we get, as he really starts to develop the theory, the journalist falls away, and he realizes I just have to do. I have to prove the economics to people. This is him at the height of his powers, where everything is melded together. So, what you're saying about the sort of personal success and policy failure <laughs> is the story of the twenties. So, in some respects, his life is going very well. Uh, he falls in love with the Russian ballerina Lydia Lopakova and marries her to the surprise of all his friends who thought he was gay and who thought Lydia was rather uh, common. Yeah. One of them, Clive Bell, says that her spiritual home is Woolworths. Yeah. Of, of all the catty <laughs> Bloomsbury remarks, that is my favourite. It's the least fair, but yeah. it, it made me laugh out loud. Oh, it's so <laughs> mean. Uh, they want children, um, but they can't have them. Which I think is relevant because there's a sort of famously nasty claim from the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter that Keynes thought short term because he couldn't have children and didn't oh, really care God, about long term. It's fucking, fucking horrible. Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, we should have say, you know, throughout the following periods, we're going to talk about the economics, you know, 
But throughout all of this, they have this really thriving sexual relationship. All of the letters are just sort of just full of gobbling kiss. I mean, it's all a bit kind of like warm, wet kisses. It's a bit like, oh, I don't know how much of this I want to think about, Keynes. But it's it's a real relationship. Oh, yeah. It, and, and it's funny, but so much of the Bloomsbury, it's, it's fairly common in Bloomsbury for sort of gay men to ultimately settle down with a woman. But but it, it very rarely has this tone to it, this really vivacious sort of real commitment to one another, like a real physical commitment as well. And she falls really firmly into that category that he has for Bloomsbury as a whole, which is, you know, artistic integrity, tender, vulnerable must be protected from the realities of the world. So he just sets him up, sets himself up once again as, as the guard. I'm going to take a moment for a quick thank you to our Patreons, particularly this episode, Philip Mills, Kate Spaulding, Tom Williams, Mike McCready and Tom. We couldn't do this without you. So to find out more about the exclusive benefits, including early and bonus episodes, click on the link in the show notes. So in the 1920s, uh, he's also a very wealthy. He's making a fortune on the markets, millions in today's money. So good at this, that he ends up handling investments for the Bloomsbury Group, as you said, and King's College. Mm. Um, loses most of his money in the Wall Street crash, then immediately earns it all back by speculating. <laughs> So it's building up this fabulous arts collection, uh, takes over the liberal magazine, The Nation, mm. uh, before it was merged with the New Statesman. Uh, also like a, a real um, champion of birth control, vice president of the Mary Stopes Society. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Um, but, you know, career-wise, not so great. You mentioned Wittgenstein there. Um, what he thinks is going to be his big book on philosophy, a treatise on probability, gets eclipsed by Wittgenstein, who has a kind of counter theory. So that's quite annoying. Then he takes six years to write a treatise on money, um, by which time he's sort of grown out of it. There's an amazing, uh, <laughs> amazing line from Friedrich Hayek, who we will come to later as perhaps, you know, Keynes's chief mm. antagonist. Mm. And, and in some ways still a frenemy. Oh, they <laughs> are. Lot, lot yeah, of yeah. Um so the, like the father of neoliberalism. So he's he's halfway through trashing the treaties in, in, in this kind of series of reviews when Keynes told him that he changed his mind and no longer believed in the book. <laughs> it's sort of like he could save himself some time. <laughs> that was a bit of a, that's a really messy book and I think sort of widely considered his worst. I think he would have thought that way about it as well. But also politically you're seeing like just a sort of seeping away of support. So the liberals are in really severe decline. You know, Labour is mostly much more interested in socialistic ideas than it is in the kind of ideas that he would propose the conservatives aren't very interested you start to see um you know that even the, even the magazines you know the new statesmen not being so interested in publishing him and as things get worse economically yeah the intelligentsia mostly start moving towards you know fascism and especially communism of these much more totalitarian solutions to things where his much more technocratic tinkering doesn't seem quite as attractive as it would have done yeah like you say you know he's he's sort of you know, fastened his colours to the to the Liberals' mast, and they're in decline. Um, with the Tories, he prided himself on being able to speak to anyone and tailoring his message mm. to his audience. 
so it's not as if he's completely uh, a pariah and nobody will listen to him. It's like they're listening, but then they're not acting. So his biggest failure, I suppose, is is, is over the gold standard, uh, which, as in the Churchill episode, we will mention, and then not really go into because the. <laughs> It's quite boring. But the key thing is, is that Winston Churchill, as Chancellor, starts off agreeing with Keynes that it's a terrible idea to restore it to its pre-war parity, but bows to Treasury wisdom. And as we know, it was a disaster. Wrecks the economy, leads to the general strike, and so on. Keynes writes a book with the title, The Economic Consequences of Churchill. Yes, although somehow still manages to make that friendship work later on as well. Again, you see that pattern, right, of um, the politics were allowed to take precedence over the economics. That's what the gold the return yeah, to the yeah. gold standard was. You know, it's quite clear what was going to happen. It was done for really reasons of national pride and this yearning to go back to the pre-war world when everyone wasn't so sort of damaged and horrified by by what had just taken place. And he, he really was very consistent in his warnings, and he was proved right. completely right in every single respect in a manner not dissimilar to what happened at Versailles. And I think that starts to build his reputation. It does among, Ch- I mean, later on, you know, when when Churchill's in the war, the reason he puts a lot of store in Keynes's ideas is because he was right when he well, was like, wrong. Well, like in different ways, they were the told you so guys, <laughs> you know, but, did, yeah, did, did, you know. <laughs> but, but it must have been great fun at the other club, hanging out with the two told you so guys. Labour, uh, just as disappointing for Keynes, they take power in 1929, uh, the year of the um, Wall Street crash. Uh, Labour's Chancellor Philip Snowden, um, not being remembered well by history, won't listen to Keynes at all, uh, introduces an austerity package that Keynes calls the most foolish document I have ever had the misfortune to read, <laughs> which ends up bringing down the government in in 1931, uh, leading to the national government. Um, now, the only Labour minister who's really into Keynes's ideas... Mm, problematic fave. It's problematic, and it is... It's Oswald Mosley. Uh, so this is pre-fascist Oswald Mosley. He's still in the Labour Party. He is actually way before Keynes, someone that says uh, that unemployment is a result of um, effective demand, quote, effective demand. Huh. Now, that's yeah. kind of extraordinary that actually he was really, he's not just saying, let's just do some stuff. He, he was actually, he, it was like a flash of intuition, but it wasn't a theory. You know, he couldn't construct it into a right. theory, but he was there. Keynes would later write to him when he, by this point, was out of the Labour Party and had become sort of a, a full-on fascist. You know, he wrote to sort of Keynes, going, I'm really glad you're saying all this stuff is really helpful. And Keynes wrote back saying, I write it not, quote, not to embrace you, but to save the country from you. And also to his credit, in the years to come, as Hitlerism starts to show in practical terms how his kind of theory might work, in other words, just take over the economy, just start spending it on yeah. war, you know, and that way you'll get employment. He never once uses Hitler as an example and fascism as an example to, to shore him up because that stuff is precisely the kind of thing that he is trying to avoid. It seems as, as good a point as any to mention Keynes's anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. uh, a very of its time kind of blot on the record. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, he had a moral objection to to the love of money for its own sake. He was very influenced by Freud's writing on the pathology of money. And he stereotyped Jewish people as the embodiment of avaricious capitalism and people who lived off compound interest mm-hmm. in capital. So it's, it's almost the left-wing kind of anti-Semitism rather than the one that you would expect of his time and class, the kind of yeah. snobbish, conservative yeah. anti-Semitism. At the same time, 
he was less so than a lot of his contemporaries, where it was just like, it was like a howling obsession, including in, in members of the Bloomsbury mm. group. And he did later help uh, many Jewish friends escape from Europe in the 30s, instantly recognised the horror of Hitler's brand of anti-Semitism. Uh, is that fair? Am I, am I missing out? Am I being too harsh, too kind? I mean, maybe a little bit too kind, but I think it's about right. Look, it was never political anti-Semitism. Um, it was also, it never seemed to get in the way of any of his friendships or working relationships. You know, so some of his closest working relationships uh, were Jewish people. I mean, particularly Richard Kahn, who who's absolutely central to his theory. And yet it is always there. You know, as you read it, there's the, it's it's the kind of go-to metaphor. And it, mm. It's there when he's talking about what's going on at Versailles and the peace talks. It's there later on in letters. Even when he's sort of just talking about someone he's made, he's like, oh, Jewish, but, you know, you wouldn't have been able to tell. You know, right, th- right. that kind of thing. It's quite hard to escape it because it comes up again and again and again. It's It's not... It isn't vicious and political and it's not personal, but it permeates an awful lot of his writing. So 1931 is the nadir of his influence, I think. He publishes a book called Essays in Persuasion. (laughs) (laughs) Not great timing. Which in the preface he calls the croakings of a Cassandra who could never influence the course of events in time. (laughs) I just want to introduce here, um, I suppose, his his intellectual opponents, um, because we're going to talk more about Hayek and, and Friedman later on. Before Hayek, Keynes' great antagonist is a, is a much less famous figure, right? Uh, Lionel Robbins at the LSE, uh, who partly wants the LSE to, to rival Cambridge in economics, to yep. be another power base. He is, it's a, a really figure of his time, a former socialist organiser turned laissez-faire mm-hmm. hardliner. And then later goes back to Keynesian. Way past the, our story, he will go back to Keynesian. And Nicholas Wapshot in a very good book, Keynes Hayek, mm. just incredibly crisp, readable book. You love that book. I really enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, Points out that actually most of the Austrian economists hadn't been translated into English. Exactly. So for that very simple, it's one of the very simple reasons. Robbins was one of the only people who had read them. Mm. And it's one reason, obviously not the only reason, but it was one reason that he was so into their um, ideas. He brought Hayek on board and he fulfills that, you know, put, put bluntly, that the early 20s slump like 1923, 22, 23 is absolute disaster for the British economy in almost every respect. And Roman sees it, it's like it's a crash diet for the economy. This is the way capitalism works. The slump is the cure. Yeah. This is not the problem yeah. because the economy should be working perfectly because under laissez-faire, right. economies work perfectly as long as people get out the way, as long as governments get out the way. So the... The Austrian school, you know, believe that slumps are inevitable. But so do some of the young socialists at LSE, like Hugh Gateskill, you know, who becomes a huge figure figure in the Labour Party later. They believe that slumps are inevitable in capitalism Mm because you want to kind of replace capitalism. And what strikes me here is a theme that's going to come up a lot, in my thinking anyway, is that Keynes is is a real, like, can-do optimist. Mm. He thinks in many ways you can change your fate. Let's not just go, ah, well, this is the tides of history and this is the cycle of capitalism. It's like you can really do something about it. And despite all these knockbacks, Ian, do you you think he was ever sort of like fully discouraged or or was there something in his personality that was just like, well, I've I've just got to try again, try harder? with the persuasion, come up with a, a, a more powerful idea. Do you, you never see him really being 
depressed. I mean, the closest you get is after Versailles, mm. you know, where he's really like, no, this just cannot stand. But it's even then it's not really depressing. You know, later on, you know, friends of his die and he does get upset, but he doesn't he doesn't seem to sort of, you know, sit in a hole for a long time. He's ultimately seems to be someone that's just like, right, okay, well, what are we gonna do that's useful? Yeah. yeah. Which is which is, I mean, such an appealing quality. <laughs> and if only you had it. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel utterly defeated already. Let's let's talk briefly about his politics, right? He he's a capital L liberal at quite a bad time, as mm. we discussed. They've tried several times to get him to run for parliament. Um but his main criticism of the other parties seems to be that they're like not clever enough. So he writes, how can I bring myself to be a conservative? They offer me neither food nor drink, neither intellectual nor spiritual consolation. I should not be amused or excited or edified. Which is not a full-on ideological assault. It's just mm. like I would be insufficiently amused mm. by these fucking dullards. And he sees Labour as, as anti-intellectual as well. Um, the, the only thing he likes about Labour is its sort of utopian streak. Mm. which is not really what the leadership is on. So he's once asked where he stands politically, and he says rather grandly, the republic of my imagination lies on the extreme left of the celestial space. No, no. That's not one of his better quotes. <laughs> no. But on Labour himself, he says, and this is this is later, this is 1936, um, I should officially join that party if it did not seem to be divided between enthusiasts who turn against anything if there seems a chance that it could possibly happen, <laughs> and leaders so conservative that there is more to hope for Mr. Baldwin, the oh, Tory wow. Prime Minister. Yeah. Now that is that you could lift that shit like verbatim right? and put it right now. Yeah. So so it's interesting. He wants to reduce inequality. In some ways, he he is into you know, sort of social justice and saving people from poverty, but he doesn't want to antagonize the successful and the exceptional, which is like him and his friends. And where this leads him in the 30s is he wants to save capitalist liberal democracy from the rising tides of fascism and communism. And he was really freaked out. About half of the Cambridge Apostles, his old club, at this point were basically socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a fifth yeah. of Cambridge undergraduates. And he's really worried about it. He writes to a director of the Bank of England and says, look, I seek to improve the machinery of society, not overturn it. That's his, um, and the, I mean, he's quite lovely on this. And he's basically coming up with the same message over and over and over again. You know, on the one hand, socialists were saying, well, you're basically just like a puppet of capital. And on the other hand, to sort of bankers. And this is the message to bankers. I would like to warn the gentlemen of the city in high finance that if they do not listen in time to the voice of reason, their days may be numbered. I prophesy that unless they embrace wisdom in good time, the system upon which they live will work so very ill that they will be overwhelmed by irresistible things which they will hate much more than the mild and limited remedies offered to them now. Well, there's a good uh, book about Keynes called Capitalist Revolutionary. Mm. And I really like that that idea of framing him. Of course, he's, he's hugely admired by the left, but not the 1930s left, you know, the communist mm. left. He or was, even now, you know. He's the guy he, who wanted to fix capitalism. You, you will hear nice things said about him from sort of Corbyn-y type people, mm. right? But actually, his evaluation and assessment, and we'll talk more about this, I think, in the second episode, is... He is a capitalist and he believes in capitalism. And in fact, his primary goal is to save capitalism from itself. You know, that, that, there's no stripping it out. You know, he is a mixed economy guy. You know, mm. there's going to be state intervention, but also the market should be left to do the things that the market can do well. And that is not particularly 
you know, surprising. That's no different to what, you know, what we would think of as, you know, Swedish, you know, attempts to, to do an economy. I mean, you can go pretty far to the left on that view, but he always was committed to the fact that capitalism was a very good system. It just needed to be prevented from doing its worst things and helped to operate yes. at peak efficiency. Uh, and there are probably like two quotes of Keynes, one of which is contested, but you know, two, two, the, 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 a lot of people will know. Mm. Um, and one of them is, is, is really sort of sums up his, his initial objection to classical economics, is that the, the claim of classical economics was that in the long run, all economies reach equilibrium. So you have to weather the slumps, but you know, you'll, mm. you'll get there. And he responded, this long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. Mm. Uh, I, think, I don't think I'd ever really understood like exactly where that quote came from, mm. like what the context was. Right, it's, a, right. it's a very crisp and witty way. Yes, it is, isn't it? Of yeah, going yeah, like, yeah. you know, you cannot let people suffer and live and die because you're just going, well, you just wait. The market will correct itself. Mm, mm. Can I tell you my favorite uh, Keynes quote? Mm. It's when he was on holiday and he refused to increase his tip to a shoeshine boy. And he said, I will not be party to debasing the currency. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we should just end this first part on a couple of other important things about his personality and his thinking around that time. Because in part two, we're going to tuck into really his sort of grand theory mm. of, of economics uh, and the rest of his life and his legacy. I want to just talk a little bit about his his personality, right? He's he's this amazing debater and phrase maker. He's combative, but he's willing to compromise. He's generous and supportive, but also quite sort of rude and imperious. Yeah. And it seems to me that his major character flaw was that he wasn't going to hide his cleverness. So Roy Harrod, that, that first biographer, writes, no one in our age was cleverer than Keynes, nor made less attempt to conceal it. <laughs> and there is a suspicion that sometimes his influence was limited by the fact that some people just found him like an obnoxious smartass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how would you not? You know? I mean, how would... I mean, he, I think especially by the time that we start looking at him operating in the U.S., where he becomes quite important sort of, you know, to British politics in the US. And they just can't take it at all also because he's, he's extremely sneering and condescending about the Americans in general. He, he, I think he's also part of a class that couldn't accept the fact that Britain no yeah. longer had the upper hand. Um, so, no, I mean, I think it 100% gets in the way of him trying to accomplish the things that he says he wants to accomplish. And, and just it's the weird thing is that the, his, his sort of ideological enemies will say really nice things about him mm. and his allies will say really harsh things about him. There's an argument um, that, you know, sort of he, the road to Keynesianism begins with these supplements that he produces for The Guardian, the Manchester Guardian mm -hmm. in 1922. The lineup is fucking astounding, like in terms of pulling in. Mm. Asquith, Ramsay MacDonald, Sidney Webber, the Fabian Society, Harold Lasky, the young mm. socialist yeah, yeah. economist, Walter Lippmann, the American journalist and Jesus influence Christ. on neoliberalism, Maxim Gorky, the Russian novelist, and the Queen of Romania. <laughs> Uh, and C.P. Scott, the founder of The Guardian, I mean, obviously, you've got to be quite impressed. And it, this really helped the circulation. It helped Keynes' reputation. So Keynes is a brilliant and original thinker in his own subjects, but he is also the most obstinate and self-centered man I ever encountered. 
And, and this a, happens all the time. He's amazing. Oh, God, I can't stand him. There's a, this report back from a civil servant that got sent with Keynes to negotiate with the Americans in Washington. He reported back to London, Keynes was the outstanding personality. He shone in two respects. In the fact that he is, of course, one of the brightest lights of mankind, and also by being the world's worst chairman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. It's not that one. It's quite Churchillian in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not like Churchill, really. But in terms of like the, the, what people say about him, it attracts hyperbole. It's always like he was the best at this, but the worst at that. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. was a genius and a stinker. And these are these people are kind of fascinating. And it's maybe sort of paradox rather than nuance. Don't you think also that when you don't respect boundaries, when you cannot be just designated as a thing, you become quite upsetting to a lot of people. Like you look at the way that he gets treated by Virginia Woolf, for instance, or by some of the other mm. Bloomsbury's. It's like, well, you're not really one of, ultimately one of our, you know, you're kind of like, you're this kind of treasury numbers guy. You don't understand true beauty. But then, you know, he marries Lydia and Lydia's not one of them either. She's not intellectual enough. Mm. You know, you couldn't talk to her about literature and blah, blah, Because the things he does, he keeps on just not slotting easily into a, into a category. So even those people get very, very close to him, it's quite rare that he has that kind of relationship where he doesn't at some point do something that they find offensive because they do live in the world of much firmer categories. Oh, you're comparing someone like Hayek, who actually, we will come to this, but I actually warmed to him uh, in the research for this episode. But, you know, Hayek is like, he's quite narrow. Mm. He's, he's an economist. He has a theory and he's not very good at putting it across. And he doesn't he, really want to talk about much else. No, and he's quite, by, by comparison, quite a small and narrow figure. And, and, and Keynes is like this one-man rebuke to the concept of staying in your lane. <laughs> Hello, I'd like to take this opportunity just to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. One by one, name by name, starting with John Stark, Joe, Helen Bauman, Peter Louise Carlin, and David Vaughan Birch. You're all very, very wonderful people, and we are profoundly grateful for helping us out. Cheers, guys. To find out more about subscribing and receiving exclusive extra content, click on the link in the show notes. Okay, so let's wrap it up here for the first episode. In the second episode, we will be looking in detail at that general theory of his, the one that changed the world and provided a future for social democracy. And we will look at what followed, his legacy, the triumph of Keynesianism, the collapse of Keynesianism, the bizarre muddled world that we've lived in since the financial crash of 2008, and the future of Keynesianism in this country. And part two will already be in your inbox if you are a Patreon subscriber. If you are, thank you so, so much. It's really, uh, it got me through all 800 pages of the Skidelsky Skidelsky (laughs) No knock on Skidelsky. I'm just saying it helps. (laughs) Tiny text as well. Tiny text. And if you're not a supporter, but you'd like to become one, and get early episodes, bonus episodes, and all kinds of goodies, then the link is in the show notes. The merch. What about the merch? I mean, the merch is, yeah, yeah. The merch is the main reason. Keynes would have liked the merch. Might, might actually sit down and try and come up with some, some Keynes merch. merch. <laughs> You'd like that. He would appreciate it. In the long run, we were all dead would be a great <laughs> mug. Okay, we will see you next time. Cheerio.
Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.